Minnesotan conundrums in sports is whether it's about the team or the individual. Back in the early days of the NFL, Pete Rozelle believed passionately that in a game only played once a week, the team was the key to marketing. In basketball, former NBA commissioner David Stern saw the value of individual stars as the key to drawing fans. For baseball, it's been a mixed bag. Even for iconic teams like the Dodgers or the Giants, the question of team versus the individual continues to be hotly debated. But for the Dodgers, at least the current team and its current ownership, the answer is clear. With players like Yasiel Puig, Clayton Kershaw, Hanley Ramirez, Adrian Gonzalez, and Carl Crawford, the individual player has been king, second only to the dollars that they are paid. Looking at this team, a team that was in bankruptcy from a messy divorce just three years ago, I'm joined by my guest, sports journalist Molly Knight. Molly Knight has written about baseball for ESPN Magazine. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Glamour, and Variety. Her new book, garnering much attention in this baseball season, is the best team money can buy. The Los Angeles Dodgers' wild struggle to build a baseball powerhouse. Molly Knight, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I want to go back a little bit, about a couple of years, three years, to the state the Dodgers were in as uh, the McCourt divorce was going on. Yeah, no, I mean it was it was a mess. It was it was really dark. I mean, you had a team that was leading all of baseball attendance year after year after year, and their owner, who had no other bus- no other businesses which you know to make money and, and support his lifestyle, was just basically using the team as his own personal ATM. But really taking it to the next level by um, taking taking out loans against future season tickets so that he could build mansions for himself all over the country and. Uh, it got to the point where this team again was leading was leading the world in ticket sales, and uh, couldn't pay their players, couldn't couldn't actually make payroll, and had to file for bankruptcy. So it was pretty bleak. What impact did that have on the team itself? What was the psychological impact on the team and the players, and really the way the team perceived themselves at that point? Yeah, that's a good question. It's it's funny because um, fans. You know, all fans have opinions about about the owners of their favorite sports teams, and and you know most of those opinions, some of them are positive, but a lot of them are negative, and uh, and they, they they assume that players feel the same way, and and they really don't. Uh, players don't really care or get involved in that stuff until unless something extreme happens. Um, I remember I was on a flight once, uh, happened to be I happened to be seated next to Matt Kemp uh, from San Francisco to Los Angeles um, in the off season one year, and. We got into a pretty heated discussion. We knew each other. We got into a pretty heated discussion about McCourt. Uh, I, I was saying, you know, what if I was, I was a cheapskate and how and it was criminal and and um, he was ruining the civic treasure because I grew up in Los Angeles and, and I and I have uh, you know emotional ties to the Dodgers from, from generations of, of my people or Dodger fans. And he was like, no, you just don't know him like I do. You know, Kemp was, you know, he's a good guy. He's this, he's that. What I didn't realize, I found out later, is that um, Matt was flying down to L.A. to sign um, his $160 million contract extension. Um, so, of course, he's going to say, oh, he's a great guy. It's misunderstood. Because his reality is, like, this is the guy who's giving me $160 million. Like, of course, I'm going to be uh, defend him. But when you file for bankruptcy because you um, you can't meet player payroll, that gets their attention. Uh, that's when they're like, whoa, uh, what's going on? That and also, like, the racist remarks, like what Donald Donald Sterling did, um, right. those, those that's pretty much uh, how you get the attention of uh, of your players. Um, and I think 
I think that's sort of like how this book happened because uh, I was covering the, the divorce and the bankruptcy trial for ESPN and I was in the courthouse, going from the courthouse downtown LA every day to the clubhouse by the stadium. And when he filed for bankruptcy because he couldn't meet player payroll, they started asking me, um, you know, wow, what's going on? My agent doesn't know like, what's happening. Like, how are we going to get paid? When are we going to get paid? Um, because you threaten, you threaten a person's paycheck and, and they're going to, they're going to want to, you know, <laughs> get to the bottom of it. So, then it became this like situation where they, I had information they want. It, it was it, usually the reporter is is the one that that um, needs all the information. So it was more of an even swap at that point, and that's that's sort of uh, when the relationships began that 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 wound up forming this book. Talk a little bit about the culture of the Dodgers. You know, teams not unlike corporations and big businesses, right. they develop an internal culture. Talk a little bit about the Dodger culture through the years and as it played out in this transition from the McCord ownership to the current ownership group? Yeah, well, so the team was always uh, family-owned by, by the O'Malley family in Brooklyn and then in L.A. And it's very, um, a very inclusive organization. that They, they do something where uh, for every day they're in first place, employees get um, ice cream, have like, you know, just in the stadium and uh, and it's great. And, um, and, and it was just sort of like this, there's this idea of like, of uh, the, the, the Dodger way. It's all first, kind of a first class um, situation, the way they treated people. And then they, they were owned by Rupert Murdoch with Fox and then and then by McClure. It just became sort of like, I know a lot of that got tarnished. Um, and they're getting back to where they were. The problem was when this new ownership group took over, they knew they had to, that the farm system was a mess and the, and the regular team was a mess uh, because McCourt had been investing um, money in, in uh, Latin American ballplayers and, and international prospects and, and the things that you need to do to make sure that the team continues to be, uh, the, the farm system continues to be robust. And so this new ownership group, they didn't want to just rebuild. They wanted to be good right away while they were rebuilding. So what they had to do was trade uh, for stars who were no longer wanted by their teams for whatever reason. Uh, Cammy Ramirez, they drink as all as Carl Crawford, Josh Beckett, you know, Brian Brian Wilson. And you throw in these guys who, A, might be, um, you know, a little bit of a locker room problem, and B, don't know each other. They didn't come up together um, through the system like a lot of these Giants players have, uh-huh. for instance. Um, they, they don't, they just don't even know, forget like personalities. They just, they don't even know how to play with each other. Um, and that creates a problem. It's not, it's, it's really hard to win that way. Um, so yeah, that's, that's I, I describe in the book that they were, they were one team, but they really were like 25 separate corporations. Um, and they're working on that. That's part of the reason why they didn't trade. They have, they've, they've been holding on to their top prospects is because they don't want it to be that way. They want it to be their, their team even more like the Cardinals or, or even the Giants where, for the most part, you have homegrown players, and then you you can you can afford to bring in like the stud free agents um, to complement that. But that your team isn't just all free agents. The other side of that, or really the corollary to that, is that if you're going to do that, do you have the right temperament in terms of management? Talk about that right. in terms of a how the new management group saw this problem, and and b whether or not Don Mattingly was the guy to pull this off. Well, it's it's funny because in the book um, I explored all these all these parts and and uh, a lot of the people that I wrote because the book came out this year, but I've been I've been working on it you know for for um, since 2013 and um, 
a lot of the people who I identified as problems um, have either been, it looks like the book was written in hindsight because a lot of people that I identified as problems have either been like fired, treated, not resigned, or, or, or whatever, um, and uh, are cut. And they have a really strong owner. He's, he's, he wants to win. He puts his money where his mouth is. And he doesn't meddle. So it's sort of like the perfect combination of an owner. Um, you know, he's like a, he reminds a lot of people of Jerry Buss, Dr. Jerry Buss, the Lakers, uh, legendary Lakers owner. Um, they have, uh, they had a, they had a weak general manager in that Kaladi. He, um, he just, it's the, it's a game where you have to be, uh, comfortable with sabermetrics and, and all these new fun ways of evaluating players. And he really, uh, wasn't, the, the game's changing and, um, it sort of, it sort of passed him by. Honestly, um, and so that was that was uh, not a good um, fit, uh, for a GM going forward. As far as on Natalie goes, he never managed um, in the National League, which or played in the National League, which was pretty curious. You know, him, him being made manager. Uh, it was, it's, it's, it, the National League is, is not the American League. The National League is like playing chess compared to playing checkers, um, and all the double switching and the, and the, the pitcher hitting and pinch hitting and all that stuff. And he struggled with uh, in-game strategy and, and that really cost him um, earlier in his, in his career. He ha- also had a bench coach who never, and Trey Hillman, who never uh, played or coached the National League. And it was sort of a disaster. And I don't know, I'm not really, I'm still not really clear why that happened, um, but it did. And then they fired Trey Hillman and, and, and made Tim Wallace the bench coach and, the team has been uh, better because of it, uh, I mean, fundamentally. And I think the, the thing that Don Mattingly does well that, that fans don't see is he's just, he's got the, the perfect, uh, in my opinion, the perfect temperament to run uh, a team like this or a team like the Yankees. He's just, or the Red Sox, he's just very calm. Um, and and um, and he's just, he's kind. And, and he's, he, he, he treats people with respect, players with respect. He was a former player who was awesome, so they respect that. The baseball season is really long, and you can't be overly emotional because you'll just burn yourself out. Um, you sort of have to play the long game. And I also think he did a phenomenal job of keeping a lot of the turmoil that these guys were having and the fights that were going on. He, he did a really good job of um, keeping that under wraps <laughs> last year uh, because think another manager, some, some managers are more comfortable, you know, blowing their players up in the press. And uh, he didn't do that. Yeah, he hasn't done that. And yet he almost got fired last year. Um, he almost got fired in 2013 when they were really bad. Um, and yeah, he almost got let go. After that season ended, um, his contract automatically rested for 2014, but um, they didn't, the team didn't announce it. And there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that was, that was weird. I think a lot of people were fearing for their jobs. The front office at that point was really dysfunctional. And they, 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 cleared, they, they cleaned out the front office. Um, and I think now that they've done that, everyone seems to be on the, on the same page. But, yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't matter. Natalie is a, a good person. Um, and he has, I think, the right temperament to be a manager in today's game. Uh, but it doesn't matter if, if they don't make the World Series in the next couple of years. He'll he'll be out because it, 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 they ha- they have to with the expectations and the money that's going into this. Any manager, I mean, has to do that, or he'll be out. Talk a little bit about the current ownership group. Magic Johnson's role in it is kind of the front person for it, and and a little bit mm-hmm. how the group evolved. 
Oh uh, yeah, so there's this, they're, they're basically called the, they're called the Guggenheim Group, and it, it it was started by the grandson of James Guggenheim, who's a museum in New York is named after, but he's no longer with the company, but they but they kept the name. Uh, and this guy Mark Walter is the is the chairman, and he's he's for for confusion's sake he's he's identified as the principal owner of the Dodgers because MLB requires that each team designate a specific owner, and he's a, he the, the buck stops with him. But yeah, he's got a group of, of partners through his his organization, and then also you know he's got he's got Peter Gruber who um, Bay Area fans will know is also part owner of the Warriors and and Magic Johnson and Sam Caston who ran the Braves uh, who's the president of the Braves during their dynasty and they all sort of came together because they all know each other through you know sports over the years and just um, and, and Magic Johnson unlike say a Jay Z who only uh, the rapper Jay Z who only I think put a million dollars of his own money into the Nets. Magic Johnson put fifty million dollars of his own money into the Dodgers, which um, that's a lot of money. Even for him, it's a lot of money, and so it's not a ceremonial thing. He's not like a mascot. He's got real skin in the game here, uh, and I think another strong thing about about Magic in his business sense is um, he's phenomenal with people, but he also knows there's a lot he doesn't know, and so he doesn't. But and that that makes him very every smart person I think knows that, and so he doesn't try to meddle in like. You know, player personnel decisions. He's not like after a loss. He's not like calling up, you know, Mark Walter and saying we need to go and try to trade for this person. But like, he doesn't do that. He knows um, what his strengths are and, and why he's there. He, he he kind of they they sent him then a lot of talk of players through different things through slumps and then they got issues or whatever. Um, he does a lot of uh, he works at suite level and um, talks with a lot of sponsors and and season ticket holders and he, it's great. He's sort of like uh, uh, he's 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 the most charismatic person in any room and, and they use him effectively. It's interesting that you talk about uh, you mentioned Peter Guber who also is is one of the principals, one of the key principals in in ownership of the Warriors. In many ways, both the Warriors and the Dodgers are profoundly different, but yet reflect mm-hmm. the communities in which they're in. The Warriors is very, some have written about Silicon Valley focused, it's very collaborative, it's very transparent. Yeah. It, it, it really reflects the culture and the ethos of much of the Bay Area. And and the star quality and the conflicts and all of the things that, that you write about and we've been talking about, right. in so many ways reflects the ethos of Hollywood. Yes. No, it's true. And I think, I mean, we'll see what happens, how the personality of the Dodgers uh, starts to transform as as uh, these kids, since they've started to heal their farm system, and then they're going to promote a couple of kids in the next uh, in the next few months who are going to be stars. Uh, uh, Corey Seager, who's the number one rated overall prospect. The culture is um, is going to change once they start promoting these these kids who are so, so good and they have this, these homegrown players. It's just a different thing to to promote a, a 21 year old um, minor leaguer and uh, and that excitement and um, and sort of humility that he might bring versus you know bring, bringing in a star with an attitude problem like they've been doing. Um, I think the team will be much more cohesive and um, much less dramatic as they do that. But we'll see. Maybe not. Maybe maybe part of playing in in Hollywood is is knowing that um, that this stuff is around. I think with like a yes league, I mean, I don't know if he had come up in like Cincinnati or Milwaukee or whatever it was, 
I don't know, but it would have been the same. And he would have had the same uh, rocky road. And he, he, he came in and was expected to uh, save the season of this, this, this team that had just been sold for $2 billion. And that's a lot of pressure. And, and not to mention, there are all these uh, characters and users and, and people around um, Hollywood that glommed onto him. Um, I don't know if that would have happened in, in a smaller market. Uh, so different things that happened that sort of that sort of um, did not help his his emotional or professional development. Uh, that, that might just be a product of of Hollywood itself. Is Puig as essential to the, the the image and the reality of the Dodgers today as the media would have us believe? Well, I think he's essential to them winning. I think uh, he's a phenomenal player, and and I don't think I think there, you know people forget the reason why why Puig gets talked about perhaps as much as any other player in the game is, is because he came up and was you know had the best first month of any rookie since Joe DiMaggio. If he was just just some guy who was like average and no one would care what he did or how he behaved or or whatever, um, he can just be. He came up without any sort of you know, preparation and would just step into the batter's box and hit 400. I mean, it was incredible. The league is adjusted, obviously, as they do to every every young guy. Um, and he has struggled, and he, he's learned that, oh, wow, I can't just, um, just step into the batter's box and react. I have to study. I have to prepare. I have to fix my weaknesses because they figured it out. And um, that's hard. I mean, imagine being – it's sort of like – you know, being in high school and, and, and being the smartest person in your school and not having to study for any tests mm-hmm. and getting to college and being around other smart people and being like, oh, my God, I've got to, I've got to actually try now. I've got to, I've got to prepare. And just sort of the reawakening that that, that, that brings. Um, he's, he has to be good. If this, for them to, to uh, you know, make, make a World Series at this point, he has to be good. He can't be, be terrible um, like he's been for the last two months uh, because he's that important to their offense. So... Yeah, I mean, he's, he's vital to that team. Given how much the owners paid for the team, the, the most amount ever paid for a sports team, as you said, $2 billion, in fact, if they don't make it to a World Series in the next couple of years, is this a team that would blow itself up and do a rebuilding effort, or, or they would just no. spend more money? No, they'll never do a rebuilding effort. They are, they're, they're rebuilding right now. I mean, they in terms of, like, uh, they could have... Um, they have a very strong farm system, uh, much stronger than, than the Giants, for instance. They could have traded some of these pieces for Cole Hamels or David Price or whoever they wanted, um, uh, but they didn't do it because they don't want to gut their farm system because they know they don't want to end up like the Yankees or the Phillies. Uh, who have, were very competitive and then went uh, into the tank. I mean, I guess the Yankees have been okay. The Phillies would be the better example of that. Um, they don't want to be like that. They they would rather be like the Cardinals, who every year seem to have a new a new a new wave of kids coming up to replace um, struggling or the people who left for free agency or or the injured. Uh, so yeah, no, they're they're um, they're not going to do that. Their, their payroll will go down a little bit, um, I, but I still imagine that they're going to be in the top you know five teams of the league uh, once once these kids get promoted. And finally, talk a little bit about the fan base for the team today and, and the desire for what, what you hear periodically for a new stadium and a new home for the Dodgers. Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, Dodger Stadium is going to stay uh, the way it is. They, they've done a phenomenal job. This new ownership group came in and, you know, it's the third 
Scott, a third oldest stadium right. in, in baseball right now behind uh, Fenway and Wrigley Field. Uh, and and when they came in, there were a lot of problems with it, the lighting, the plumbing, and, and the scoreboards and all that, and they've cleaned it up, and it looks phenomenal. They really don't need a new stadium, and I don't think they're going to do that. Uh, the 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 team is just, they need to, they haven't won a, a World Series, though, in, in 27 years, and as, as you guys know, the Giants have won three in the last five, and the fan base is, is um is really frustrated right now. It's, it's funny. They don't behave. The team's been in first place like the entire year, except for I think three or four days. They don't, the fan base is not acting that way. Uh, they're acting, they're frustrated. They, they, they're sort of acting like the team is, 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 um, you know, in last place because they've just been so devastated by these two playoff losses to the Cardinals these last two years. Um, and they, and they want to, they, they want a champion. And I think there's just like a lot of frustration to like, even, even if they do win the last, um, which it looks like they might, this is a lot of frustration of like, oh, but what are they going to do in October? And I think until they they can go and, and win or even make the World Series, they haven't made the World Series in 27 years. Um, that would be a step in the right direction. Like, I know everybody wants them to win it. I mean, in LA, I should say, not in San Francisco. Uh, but, uh, but even making it would be, would be progress. Um, but I will say like the coolest thing about writing this book, I think, is uh, the Dodgers have the most diverse fan base in all sports. So for me, it's like, you know, I I am I do not take it for granted that people of all uh, races and walks of life have been buying my book and emailing me about it and talking to me about it, and and that's really cool. But as a, as a, as a white person, I didn't just write a book for other white people. I mean, I love white people. Don't get me wrong, but it's really cool to to look out into like a bullet planning and to see. Um, to see children, you know, Hispanic children or black children or, or Asian American children. This has just um, been been just such a blessing for me. And I and I think that's probably the coolest thing about um, the Dodgers. Molly Knight, her book is The Best Team Money Can Buy, The Los Angeles Dodgers' Wild Struggle to Build a Baseball Powerhouse. Molly, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 